Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting June 24, 2016, we continue our coverage of the new WPJ summer issue on renegade cities and how they cope when state and national governments fail them. World Policy fellow Kavitha Rajagopalan guides us through one dramatic case study in her article headlined, Bottling Up Discontent About the Indian City of Chennai's Black Market for Water. We'll also point out other top features in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, disappointment in the White House as Britain votes to leave the European Union. Voters in the UK decided that concerns about diminishing British influence and sovereignty outweighed the benefits of close political and economic ties with the continent. President Obama made no secret of his desire for Britain to remain in the EU, saying so publicly during a visit to London two months ago. Officials are now evaluating the vote's impact. The president has emphasized that the so-called special relationship between Washington and London will remain, of course, but in terms of trade and economic deals, things may change. In other news, Secretary of State John Kerry has met with a group of State Department employees who are unhappy with the administration's Syria policy. They say the emphasis on diplomacy has run its course. They're urging U.S. airstrikes and regime change in Damascus. Their view, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad backed by Russia, will continue starving and bombing his own citizens. Kerry listened politely, but is said to have defended administration policy. The irony is that Kerry himself has discussed a tougher U.S. stance in Syria with President Obama. Syria's gruesome civil war, now in year six, has killed hundreds of thousands and sparked a massive refugee and humanitarian crisis. The aid group World Vision says... 13.5 million people in Syria need some form of humanitarian assistance. Nearly 5 million have fled the country altogether. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Ten states across India are suffering from massive droughts, impacting 330 million people out of its 1 billion population. A study done by the Associated Chambers of Commerce shows that two consecutive years of droughts have led to a massive water shortage. The situation is so grim, a large part of the money earmarked for the country's development will now have to go towards aid and subsidies. Mother Nature can be cruel, of course, as that recent report on China's CCTV only began to hint at. But India's current water crisis is also a product of commercial greed mixed with bad planning and regulation by government officials at many levels. Besides spending too little on infrastructure for safe and sufficient supplies, they permitted commercial and residential development in locations that historically provided, purified, and stored water naturally. The result in many places is a boom in water for sale, from large commercial bottlers and packagers to small black marketers whose product often evades regulation both in purity and price. World Policy Institute fellow and author Kavitha Rajagopalan 
wrote about that problem and possible solutions in the new WPJ Summer 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, Renegade Cities. Her article is headlined, Bottling Up Discontent, Chennai's Black Market for Water. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Kavitha, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much for having me. First, remind us where the city of Chennai, C-H-E-N-N-A-I, is located, how big it is, and how seriously affected by recent and current drought. Chennai is a city that's the, it's the capital city of the state of Tamil Nadu, which is on the southeast coast of India, uh, and it uh, borders the Bay of Bengal. It's not actually in the hot drought zone of this current crisis or of many of the droughts that have hit international headlines over the last several decades. That zone uh, encompasses about 11 to 13 states, depending on who you're talking to, across the north and the center of the country. But, of course, the mentality and how to respond to water crises like these drought affects the whole country and can be found in Chennai as well. Chennai officially, the, the, the municipal center is about 4 million people, but the, the whole city population um, of the metropolitan area is about 8.65 million people and does continue to grow through migration and new birth. And I would also contend that the census data is not necessarily uh, reflective of the informal population that moves in and out of the city regionally and lives in informal settlements. Now, uh, in the last year, of course, Chennai's population has continued to not only grow, but also to uh, increase in density, making Chennai, as of last year, the third most densely populated uh, city in the country uh, and the eighth most densely populated city in the world. But though it's not in the worst drought zone, it has been affected by the drought. Of course, yeah. The, the entire ecosystem of water distribution has affected the entire country. Um, and, of course, Chennai recently had uh, um, probably excessive rainfall, so it did have some water storages to provide for the backup. But, of course, the drought has triggered mass migrations um, and has led to um, just a massive humanitarian crisis that's affecting the entire country. Of course, the rainfall often produces flooding and pollution of, of water supplies. How great is the use of commercial water? In what forms and at what prices? The, the use of commercial water is now widespread. Um, and, of course, there are different forms of commercial water, as you mentioned. Initially, the commercial water market, probably around the turn of the millennium, um, was characterized primarily by tanker trucks that were bringing in water that had been illegally, informally, and otherwise just extracted from the ground in rural areas surrounding the city. And this kind of culminates a many decades-long conversation about how to supply water to this growing city. Chennai, of course, has suffered from water shortages for ever, for decades, since it became a, a city. Um, and... What happened with these tanker trucks is they would pump the groundwater in essence desiccating the region around Chennai, which, you know, the, the region of Tamil Nadu is, does have very long, hot, dry seasons, but the overall rainfall in the region is enough to, to support agriculture. But of course, with this groundwater desiccation and this pumping, this very aggressive pumping, the entire area was experiencing desertification. And that, in some, according to some scholars, actually prompted more migration into the city. So then 
it, this, this tanker market is giving way over the last five to ten years to a packaged water market, as they call it in India. And that, of course, encompasses a different you know, a wide range of different types of packaging. You can have small packets of water, these little plastic baggies that you can see sold on the street for a, a couple of rupees, or you can see, you know, bottled water that you can buy in storefronts like our bodegas that we have in New York City, or you see more and more households purchasing large, uh, it's like water coolers like you will see in, the wa in offices throughout the city. Um, those are being purchased for home consumption. Those used to probably about five to seven years ago, you would only find those in fancy international offices and multinational corporations or in the homes of the elite. But increasingly, you're finding them all over the place. And the price ranges vary. So some places, if you're going to purchase a, a large... Um, you know, one of these water cooler things, you know, you want to purchase it from one of the well-known international conglomerates like Aquafina or Kinley or Bisleri, then you're going to be spending, you know, 100, 200 rupees for one of those packages. But there are also other smaller suppliers who use unmarked bottles, and the prices can range from anywhere from, you know, 15, 20 rupees for one of those large containers up to about 50. And there's a lot of intense competition. The market is incredibly vibrant and dynamic and responsive, and of course, very, very invisible <laughs> to the government. How much testing is ever done of this water for sale at these various levels and packaging uh, situations? How safe is it? It's, well, to say it briefly, it's not very safe. Um, the Food Safety and Standards Regulation of 2011 does mandate that no one can manufacture, sell, or distribute, or even exhibit packaged drinking water that doesn't have the Bureau of Indian Standards certification mark. But we know that the, the actual data on regulation are incredibly poor. So we also know that um, we can't actually know for sure how many uh, of these manufacturers are, are actually being regulated or licensed, but we know that about only about 20 to 30% of packaged water bought uh, and sold in India is regulated. And in, in fact, in 2014, the Tamil Nadu Pollution Control Board did report that less than 20% of the city's known mineral water packaging facilities were operating, operating under license. And that's not the bottles themselves, but the facilities. And we know that these facilities are incredibly easy to set up and start. You can set up a bottled water facility in an apartment or in the back room of an apartment and just, you know, boil some water, add some chemicals to make it taste clean, uh, and then and then sell it, rebottle it. You can reseal those bottles. We know that these informal entrepreneurs and this marketplace is incredibly vibrant, and it's, you know, it's a gap that people want. It's a very... Uh, it's an active market. So, uh, you know, there's literally no way to know how many of these informal manufacturers and vendors there actually are in the city. Talking about motivation, you stress that in Chennai, as in much of India, tests show public water is worse. Talk about those mm -hmm. tests and the link to, to very serious illness. Right. So one of the main problems we saw with the commercial water is how it's stored. You know, so... Um, I, I didn't mention it previously, but just to, to let you know, in March 2013, there was a, a, an investigation that was conducted by India's version of the FBI 
of some 300 packaged water facilities in and around Chennai, and they found that a lot of this water was being stored in really filthy ways. Some of these tanks actually had dead cockroaches lying, floating in them, and, you know, just open tanks that were in these, you know, these um, factory, these unused factory spaces or in houses. And so a number of these were, were ordered closed, and, you know, the, the regulation that happened after that um, was, was basically in response to consumer complaints. But we also know that throughout the, throughout the country, the, the, um, as you've mentioned, that the public water supply is not good. Um, in 2013, a survey uh, was conducted by this, by this private company, um, and this kind of reinforces what we're seeing from government reports. And in that survey, about 61% of households in eight cities uh, reported that the water that they received from the government supply was contaminated. And that same supply found that, you know, waterborne diseases accounted for 77% of all disease incidents in India. So we know this is a major problem. We know that disease from you know, water contamination is on the rise. And at the same time, the uh, piped water system is very poorly regulated. Um, as late as 2012, when a water quality test found huge amounts of infectious bacteria like E. coli and other major disease-causing con- bacteria in Chennai city water, um, Chennai newspapers reported that the city's municipal corporation was only conducting these kinds of tests when it received complaints from the public. And, of course, a public like this has a high tolerance for, you know, uh, for poor quality water and also doesn't trust the government. So reporting levels can be assumed to be very low. Apparently, at that time, the city's public analyst had retired. And instead of filling the position, the city corporation was just outsourcing testing to a private institute that charged money. And because this was prohibitive, they were just conducting fewer tests. And so at that time, the corporation commissioner in 2012 had said, oh, yeah, we're going to start, you know, monitoring the quality of water soon. But, of course, the main agency that's responsible for quality assurance in the city of the water supply is, the, is Metro Water. And Metro Water is not transparent. They say uh, publicly in their public documentation, they claim to test um, the, about once a month to test the, the, three, the water quality of the three lakes that supply the majority of the, um, of the city's drinking water. And we know that the city, from what we know with this, this pumped groundwater and with all of the um, alternate lakes and other sources of water that are being developed, bore wells uh, and some of these smaller lakes, we know those aren't being tested because they're saying they're testing the three main lakes. And of course, we also know that the majority of water contamination doesn't begin at the source. It doesn't begin in the lakes itself. But as the water passes through the pipe system with the pipes that are rusted, broken, old, not very well maintained in some parts of the city, the city's drinking water passes through the same pipes that carry the city's sewage with some kind of a switch mechanism. And a lot of these pipes are broken, so they allow contaminants from the ground in. The city does, the Metro Water does claim to test and collect about 500 samples each month from the city's distribution system. But I would argue, and I imagine you would agree, that that's a woefully small sample for a city of this size. So it's clear people at every economic level are willing to pay almost as a matter of self-preservation. And you say even uh, the major public water system is a customer on the black market. Oh, absolutely. 
this was uh, revealed in a report by an economist, a very well-reputed economist named S. Jenikaran, and he found that um, the Metro Water had actually been purchasing, you know, the majority of this pumped water from the tankers that were coming into the city every day. And, you know, we aren't even at this point touching on the challenges that this tanker tra- transport has been uh, posing for overall air pollution and congestion and traffic and you know, just accidents on the street. So, you know, it seems like the the city is complicit in a lot of these things. And I also think part of the confidence and this willingness to pay, we have to understand as a part of the nature of consumer behavior in India, which has changed rapidly over the last 20 years, to shift its confidence from public institutions. India was a very openly socialist country when it when it was um, made independent in 1947. And now is a very, the confidence is in the market. And in a place like India, there's a very, very fine line, if a line at all, between informal and formal markets. So while, you know, you may have these savvy global customers who are looking for brands that have an interest Internal, internal quality control process, most Indians would just look at something in the market and say, this is something for purchase. And there's a huge amount of confidence in the market that's been instilled and developed and cultivated over the last 10, 15 years. And this market confidence does uh, also have a lot to do with the fact that the market offers a lot more opportunity for Indians than public institutions. There's just the entrepreneurship, um, you know, there's so many people who are finding a pathway out of poverty through entrepreneurship in in India. Of course, it's a very um, predatory market. It's very uh, difficult to break in. There's a lot of competition. And part of the reason that the confidence level is there is because there is a high amount of Fraud. There is water that's being rebottled in brand name bottles and sold, but it's actually tap water, and there's not a lot of transparency. Uh, talking about the attitude towards government, the state in which Chennai is located was the first in India to require that private homes capture and store rainwater. But you say the nature and location of development in Chennai and places like it has actually diminished uh, natural infrastructure that historically produced and stored clean water and helped control the fatal oversupply that comes with those annual monsoons. Give us some examples of that detrimental development. Right. So, I mean, many people have been very, very excited about rainwater harvesting. And, you know, I don't want to discount some of the research that says that it's actually contributed to recharging the water groundwater supply. But many of the hydrologists and economists that I talked to said that there's just no way that rainwater catchment at this level can offset the amount of um, problems that the city has systematically. If you're talking about you know, rainwater harvesting on private households, you're talking about individual tanks. And, and as I've mentioned, many of these tanks are not well maintained. The water that's kept and stored and then may become contaminated over time. Um, and it's also a very small amount compared to what we were talking about with these, these ginormous lake systems. Chennai is traditionally, if you look at the geologist's point to the, the quality of the soil, it's very clay-like. It's not necessarily built for drainage. And so as a, a part of its natural geology, the city has lots and lots of little lakes and, you know, marshes surrounding it. Now, these lakes 
have, you know, have been shrinking. So while there was at one point thousands of lakes across the city, these lakes, according to recent studies, it's about, uh, have, there's about 50% of the lake mass left now in the city um, uh, compared to what there were. And that a part of the problem for that is that these lakes are being filled in and built on, and this is an ongoing history that's been going on for about 100 years. Now, Chennai is not the only city to do that. Cities like Boston have built on their water. You know, um, throughout California, we've seen cities built on top of waterways, and we're seeing the ramifications of that now. Um, but in a place like city, this is uh, like Chennai. This is particularly disastrous because when you build large uh, skyscrapers to accommodate this growing population and this increasingly dense population, then you're dropping large foundations into this this soil that doesn't already doesn't um, doesn't filter very easily into the ground. So water becomes trapped there and then contaminated. And then as water is piped through the city, and these pipes, as I've mentioned, are not very well maintained and are falling apart, then this contaminated groundwater seeps into the water supply. Um, So this is something that we see over and over again. In addition to that, um, during every year, we don't. Uh, every year, we we have a very very heavy monsoon in Chennai, um, not as heavy as last year's disaster in 2015. There was a major disaster that resulted from un, unseasonably or you know just a historically um, a much greater amount of rainfall than ever than had been seen in about 50 years. But now we're seeing a lot of this this water is just doesn't drain during the year. Uh, so during the monsoon season, it's not unheard of to just kind of wade through the city. The city is is partially underwater. You're you know there's there's animals dying in the water. There's trash accumulating in the water, um, and all of that water is also then eventually seeping into the ground and becoming a part of the contaminated water supply. So. We know that this process of development, of hyper-development, has not only, um, not only uh, exacerbated the problem, but may in fact actually be causing this high level of flooding every year that then contributes to this rising level of waterborne disease throughout the city. What about government promises to upgrade public water systems on paper, in politics, and, and finally in practice? I'm so glad you mentioned politics because this is a very political uh, process here. Chennai is a a politically very vibrant city. uh, Tamil Nadu has many competing uh, uh, parties in play. Um, And, of course, political promises rest very much on provision of basic amenities. So for years, and of course on the national level, the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi has already said that um, improving the quality of drinking water throughout the city is a major, uh, throughout the country is a major priority for his administration. And he too, from the very highest level, has greenlit um, these major infrastructure projects. But in a city like Chennai, perhaps major infrastructure projects may actually contribute to the problem. Some of the uh, the proposals that are in play and in negotiation involve either piping giant amounts of water from 
outside of the city into the city, which means lots of construction jobs and all of this, but it also means lots and lots of bureaucratic wrangling and negotiation pro uh, processes for these types of projects can stall and take decades. In fact, many of them have. Uh, and of course, piping water into the city does not necessarily respond to the fact that we're building, um, we're still building on top of natural water catchments, and that every year the city must figure out how to divert, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water, flood water into the Bay of Bengal. Um, so many have argued, and I agree that I think um, figuring out how to catch and store this rainfall in a in a more effective way would be less costly um, and secondary to that is uh, you know some of the pro projects they're mentioning now are, are uh, groundwater are desalination and there's desalination is, uh, is a two-sided issue on one side they're building um, you know plants out in the ocean to desalinate ocean water and distribute that into the city which of course is it makes good sense in, in places like Israel or, you know, Yemen, where these ideas kind of were piloted. Those are des desert regions. But in Chennai, there's a lot of rainfall. It doesn't, you don't need to desalinate the ocean water. Um, but groundwater desalination should be pursued. Um, the water has become very silty and salinated from excessive pumping. And so because of that, bore wells are very dangerous. So groundwater desalination should be pursued. But I think uh, the main problem is the government is, is invested in these very flashy, very exciting, high-profile, headline-grabbing projects that take a long time to green light, a long time to develop and implement, and are expensive and maybe don't necessarily uh, address the central challenge that Chennaiites have. I was fascinated that some studies suggest the informal water supply, for all its problems and unknowns, is better able to cope with public need, especially in an emergency. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is the nature of an informal market. It's agile. It can respond. Um, it can, can rise to the gap. So, for example, in November and December 2015, Chennai experienced you know, near unprecedented amounts of rainfall, and that triggered a massive crisis where for several months, you know, for about two weeks, many of the city's population were displaced. Hundreds of people died. I mean, it was a massive crisis, and the public water supply was completely paralyzed. The government wasn't able to provide public water or electricity, um, and in that time, informal entrepreneurs were able to move pretty freely through the city and distribute water to uh, to consumers who needed it. Of course, at that time, there was a, you know, kind of a predatory tendency that took over a compulsion, so to speak. So in the first couple of days after the crisis, before the rest of the donations started arriving from the rest of the country, um, those prices were extremely high. I mean, they just, they were predatory prices. But of course, the need was there. Um, I, you know, I think it's unrealistic to expect that the water supply, that the informal water supply, especially as poorly regulated as it is, um, is a natural solution to Chennai's problem. But it's also unrealistic to expect that we can just regulate it out of existence. At this point, people have confidence in informal water. 
people have uh, you know confidence in seeking employment through informal water markets and they're agile and able to respond so I, I think um, although many of the experts that I spoke to the hydrologists said that this is just not a good way going forward and the city should you know shut that down and invest in infrastructure in a different way um, I, I think we're we should expect to see informal water markets around for a long time in Chennai and you say there are proposals to better coordinate private and public water systems, but not to overregulate. Talk about that. How much regulation might be too much and why? Right. So the private systems that I, the experts were talking about were companies that are registered and licensed companies. So private uh, but not informal. And those companies may be engaged through a kind of a bidding process to you know, maintain or build or develop or monitor certain parts of the water system so that the water system can function better. And that's one of the proposals that's on the table. But when we talk about informal water market, this is the same problem that we see globally. People who participate either as consumers or as sellers, manufacturers, and distributors inside the informal water market are usually not the most well-resourced um, people uh, in, in society, and they're not the highest profile people. So uh, traditionally in a country like India, a city like Chennai, the easiest solution has been to criminalize. So regulation then takes that form. If you create a license where there's a licensing fee and someone must undergo a test, that is prohibitive and restrictive for people so that, you know, people who don't necessarily have the time or the transportation or, you know, even the literacy level to study for a test, to maintain those fees and don't have the extra cash on hand to purchase those license, licenses will automatically be excluded from that process. And so then what you do is you create a whole criminal infrastructure around people who have the licenses and people who don't. So then city resources and money goes to, you know, cracking down on criminals. And then you create, you know, incentive for criminal black market enterprises to run water. Now, um, you know, that has proven in the past not only to fail to actually shut down uh, unregulated water sources, but it's also um, proven to be, uh, to create problems that weren't there before, not only in, you know, just kind of creating a new class of criminal, um, but also in draining and diverting city resources away from actually addressing the water problem and into cracking down on small-time vendors. Well, history can sometimes be destiny. You say uh, India already boasts a traditional informal water system that still works well in some places. The local water council or Pani Panchayat, if I'm pronouncing it right, mm -hmm. how broad is its mm -hmm. mandate? How does it work? Well, since it's an informal system, it's not, it doesn't have any mandate, really. It's more just kind of an, an honor system. And, you know, what the Pani Panchayat does is really um, engage local villagers in kind of regulating their own water supplies. So people from different villages will send representatives to meet. They might create some kind of a constitution. Um, and it was actually an idea that was developed um, by water rights activists, I, I believe in Maharashtra, um, uh, which is one of the drought-affected regions, um, one of the most uh, heavily affected states with this most recent drought. And you know, I think what what the 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 goal 
the goal was was to bring together local villagers so that they could decide how how the water um, and the waterfront areas in their villages were used. And the plan was, you know, many of the people in these villages um, did not actually want to see large-scale construction happening on their riverbanks or, you know, in their waterfronts. They didn't want to see, um, you know, private control of what they believe is a public good. Um, in India, water and air is believed to be public property. And so they didn't want to see those uh, those being taken away over property rights issues. So a lot of the Pari Panchayat's work is around, you know, kind of rights-based education and informing people that they have, you know, rights even if they don't have property rights, they have rights to this public good and that they should have a say in how this public good is used. Um, for example, in Chennai, Chennai does not actually have an active Pani Panchayat as far as I know, but the city... Uh, the city actually owns all of these river fronts and water fronts and water um, catchments and lakes. Um, but what's happened over the last 10, 15 years is that the city has slowly evicted people who are living there on various grounds, um, either for living in unsafe houses, so to speak, I'm using air quotes, um, or for living in unsanctioned houses there. And so a lot of people have been evicted, and then those waterfronts, when cleared, are sold to, um, to real estate developers for a profit. So Apani Panchayat, for example, would oversee some process like that and resist a process like that and say this is actually not good for the city. We don't need a light rail or a waterfront park or some kind of a, a fancy high-rise and five-star hotels. What we need is, you know, just more uh, safe housing for the people who already live there. So that's how Apani Panchayat might function. In the region of Rajasthan, there's an even grander-sounding river parliament. How is that different in the, in the, in the goal and operation? You know, I actually haven't been to visit the river parliament, so I can't speak exactly to it. But looking at their constitutions on paper, they really do seem to have very similar goals. And the objective is, you know, to engage local citizens in rural areas in actually regulating their water supply. So they create the rules, they figure out how they're going to enforce the rules, and they monitor it. And, you know, it sounds from here, from the United States, this sounds, you know, a little bit pie in the sky and utopian. Oh, these rural people are going to regulate and they're going to take back the land. But really something like this has very deep roots in Indian culture and consciousness and was certainly a part of the Gandhian movement, this idea of an honor system of self-regulation, of self-governance as a form of empowerment and resistance is a very, very important part of, you know, kind of Indian political history. So, um, you know, I think it actually, it, it seems to be from what the reports that I'm reading, the River Parliament seems to be functioning relatively well in kind of establishing rules about who may build on the riverfront um, and who may use water from the waterfront at what times and how much, you know, and how you can actually use the waterfront. It seems to be working relatively well. Of course, the claims are very, um, you know, powerful. The claims are that, you know, we've been able to recharge and, you know, renew the water supply here in this way. I, you know, that we'd have to look into that a little bit closely to see whether that's just, 
you know, one person's kind of campaigning. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it's worth looking into. It's certainly less expensive than building some kind of a, a major pipe system or, you know, a desalination plant. Still, it looks like for the foreseeable future, individual consumers will still have to look out for themselves in terms of the water they get from private or public sources and what they do to minimize any dangers from it. Absolutely, and this is the main challenge. I mean, we're requiring Indian consumers to make decisions without, you know, um, accurate information or transparency from their government or from the market suppliers. Um, so a lot of this, these, this decision-making process is impeded. Um, so, you know, I hope in the future to see a system in which Indian consumers get better information about what kind of resources are available to them and can participate in determining how their water supply is maintained and developed in the future so that they can, you know, make better decisions for their health. And some people have actually said, some researchers have actually said in the interim period that the best way of reducing waterborne disease is to actually engage directly with, with household consumers and educate them as to how they can treat and maintain their water supply in their own homes on the back end. Kavitha, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. World Policy Institute fellow Kavitha Rajagopalan is the author of Muslims of Metropolis, the stories of three immigrant families in the West from Rutgers University Press and a forthcoming volume titled All Roads, The New Nomads, Invisible Journeys, and the Future of Citizenship in a Global World. Her article in the new summer 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is headlined Bottling Up Discontent, Chennai's Black Market for Water. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about public-private collaboration for affordable housing, at least on paper, about honor killings in Pakistan, and about a different sort of tragedy in Kashmir. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on Northern England's attempt at regional integration. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea. Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.